You know, if this was a stage with uh, on a television show, this would be called a mark that somebody had to hit. But I'll tell you what this is. This is this is from the stage game in Bible Bowl last week. This piece of tape here. So it's my mark. This is as far as I can go when I if I wander from the pulpit. So good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you. Um, can we have the uh, PowerPoint up? Now, if someone you know is someone that you would describe as a know-it-all, that's not a compliment in case you didn't know that. We all know it's a negative to call someone a know-it-all. It's an insult. It's not seen as a positive trait in any way when you refer to someone as a know-it-all. Now, if we took these words literally, we'd think it would be really amazing to know it all, right? To know everything there is to know. But we all realize intuitively that no one knows everything there is to know. That's why when someone acts as if they know everything, it comes across as arrogant or at the very least annoying. On screen is the face we want to make when we encounter a know-it-all. Not coincidentally, this face is also at least figuratively the reaction that our culture has when we say the Bible says. And as we see it, all we're doing is quoting, when we quote scripture, we're quoting the only one who truly knows it all. But in our common vernacular, nobody thinks that being a know-it-all is a good thing in any way. The dumbest people I know are those who know it all, says Malcolm Forbes. An African proverb, a wise man never knows all, only fools know everything. A know-it-all is a person who knows everything except how annoying he is. An important mark of a good leader is to know you don't know it all and never will. Now, don't you sometimes want to say to a know-it-all, since you know it all, you should also know when to shut up. (laughs) Max Lucado captured something important about this topic when speaking of Jesus, God the Son. He said, I think it's noteworthy that the Almighty didn't act high and mighty. The Holy One was, wasn't holier than thou. The one who knew it all wasn't a know-it-all. The one who made the stars didn't keep his head in them. The one who owns all the stuff of earth never strutted it. So the only one who really, genuinely, completely knows everything came to earth as a humble servant, Jesus Christ. Now our culture says if you've got it, flaunt it. Jesus, God the Son the Word made flesh, was the embodiment of a true know-it-all. But he never flaunted it. He mostly hid it, didn't he? Most of his earthly existence. The only thing we might think of as exceptions were his miracles. But even then, what do you remember about his miracles? He often admonished people not to tell anybody about them, right? Jesus, God the Son, was the only genuine know-it-all the world has ever seen. But he didn't act like one when we talk about trusting and hoping in God. Now, we've done a lot of that here in the beginning of 2024, the first few weeks in our sermons, haven't we? We recognize that our trust and hope must have a basis, a foundation on which to build our trust and our hope. One of the key things the Bible does for us is tell us of God's character. And his character is revealed in his attributes, the characteristics that we can apply to God. Now, some of these characteristics of God, such as love and mercy and compassion, we can emulate. 
Matter of fact, we're encouraged to emulate those things. Others, such as omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience, we can't because we are finite creatures. We are not the creator of all things. It's because of that character, which the Bible so clearly illustrates for us, that we can fully and completely trust God. We can trust Him to redeem the past. We can trust Him to handle the present and plan the future for us. As individuals and for all of humanity, He is a faithful and trustworthy God. Amen? And the Word reveals this clearly with several attributes that we can learn about who God is. We can start with His omni-attributes. Omni meaning all. One of those omnis is omniscience, all-knowing. God knows it all. Now we mock contemporary know-it-alls because we know they don't know it all. But our great and mighty God does. God, think about this, God is never surprised. He's never confused. He's never uninformed. He doesn't learn or grow in knowledge or understanding. He's never fooled or deceived. He never has a change of plans to adjust to in an unforeseen circumstance. He doesn't plan a picnic and then have to change his plan because the weather's bad. He never has to figure things out. He's never wrong. He never loses a trivia contest. He doesn't gamble. He doesn't take risks. Something's risky only if you don't know the outcome in advance. But God sees the end from the beginning. He'd win every time at Jeopardy or Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? If I knew everything, past, present, and future, as God does, I could win the lottery. I could bet on horses or ball games, and I could be very rich. Or maybe I'd just always pick the, wouldn't pick the wrong line at the grocery store. <laughs> you know, the one that seems the fastest but ends up being behind the person who's paying everything with change and coupons. Been there, done that? The word omniscience comes from the Latin word omnis, meaning all, and scientia, meaning knowledge. So literally, omniscience refers to the fact that God has all knowledge. There's nothing hidden from him, past, present, or future. So there's nothing that would surprise him or confuse him. And along with knowing everything about the world and everything about himself, God also, unlike us, knows how everything appears from every possible point of view. We see this in multiple passages. We see this in many verses in the Word of God. Now remember, one of the purposes of Scripture is to reveal God's character and His attributes. Why? So we can fully trust Him in everything. Among the things God knows completely and perfectly is us. He knows each one of us completely and perfectly. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. First Chronicles 28.9 The Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, why does this matter? 
Why does this matter to us? What difference does this particular attribute or any of the attributes of God make for you and me today in our daily lives? Is it just to scare us? I mean, it could be kind of scary. God knows everything, right? Is it to make God like the great Santa in the sky? He knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake, right? He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. When I got old enough to think about it, I always thought that that classic Christmas song was kind of creepy. Santa's a stalker. (laughs) But seriously, is this morning's message just an exercise in theology? Is it an ivory tower scholarly exposition of an unknowable God? Well, I want you to recognize something here. Let's recognize together that theology isn't just for those we might call theologians and scholars. That's why we do what we do here at TCF, because it's for all of us. Any believer in Christ is a theologian. It's just a question of are they a good theologian or a bad theologian. We study the Word of God together because we want to know Him more and better. So any theology done right is always immensely practical. Think about this. When we speak about prayer, and we do often here at TCF, we're talking about something theological, aren't we? We're in the midst of a 21-day season of prayer and fasting. We have monthly corporate prayer meetings. We have uh, monthly prayer days. We have a meeting to pray for descendants every month. The elders pray for this church in our meetings every Tuesday morning for at least 30 minutes. The house churches all have a time of prayer in their meetings. We have a segment in every Sunday service devoted to prayer. We pray during other segments of the service, right? And some other things that we do, like before communion, the introduction of communion, we pray in the missions moment. So let's consider how God's perfect knowledge of everything relates to our prayers. Because God knows everything, we can trust that he answers our prayers. Now here's the caveat. Not necessarily in correspondence with the way we see or want things. In our finite knowledge. But God answers our prayers in line with the perfect way that he sees and understands. This means that, again, because he knows everything, God gives us exactly what we would give ourselves if we knew everything he knows. Think about that. This is one way we could argue that God answers the believer's every prayer. He answers, but not always in the way we would want or choose in our limited thinking, because, I don't know about you, but I'm not omniscient. He also withholds from us what we would keep from ourselves, again, if we knew what he knows. There's suffering, and something many of us are experiencing in one way or another, and this is another thing we can think of. This is one of the reasons that three of the first four messages we've heard from this pulpit in the first month of the year, addressed in some ways the reality of our suffering. We heard about hope, we heard about lament, and we heard about pruning. And then we also heard about stupid things, but that didn't have anything to do, well, I don't know, maybe stupid things bring suffering, so maybe even that we can relate. Now our natural reaction to suffering is that our suffering, or suffering because of the evil that we see in the world around us, our natural reaction is to ask why. Why? Why is this happening, we ask God. 
And as Jim Grinnell noted a couple of weeks ago in his sermon on the God's gift of lament, that's a reasonable question. Scripture doesn't prevent us or discourage us from asking that question. And God can handle our hard questions. He can handle our deep emotion when things don't go the way we want to see them. The psalmist asked this, Why, O Lord? How long, O Lord? If God has in His great understanding allowed or ordained some difficulty or genuine suffering in our lives, just as He ordained the suffering of Jesus on the cross for our salvation, then even when we can't see any possible reason for that pain we're experiencing, it's critical for us to know that God knows. God knows. Just because we can't see a reason doesn't mean that God doesn't see the reason or reasons. He knows infinitely and perfectly. He sees, he understands, he knows. The reasons, the purposes behind everything that happens, the good, the bad, and the ugly in our lives. Good and bad from our perspective. But he allows these things to bring about his ultimately good purposes according to his perfect plan. Scripture illustrates this idea for us. We see in Genesis chapter uh, 50, verse 20, where Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We know the story of Joseph, right? He was sold into slavery. He spent time in prison. He suffered. He didn't know why this was happening when it was happening. But God did because God knows all. God is omniscient. God knew, even though Joseph didn't, that these things were happening for reasons that at the point he was suffering, these things were hidden from him. Joseph didn't have a clue. All he knows at this point, at any point in that story, is that these things are tough. They're bad from my perspective. But there were good reasons. God saw the end from the beginning. Joseph didn't. We don't. We don't see the end from the beginning. It's important for us to remember that the story of our lives as individuals who are in Christ fits into a bigger, fuller, grander story, a story that God already knows and has known from eternity past. And here's the other thing about our story, my story. It's not all about me. It's not all about me. But we get these blinders on when we suffer, don't we? We get these blinders. All we can see is what's hurting us. All we can see. That's why we need the Word. We also need the body of Christ. Why? Because the Word and the body of Christ help us pull those blinders away so we can see a bigger picture. We still can't see all God sees, but we can see a bigger picture, and that helps us. It's important for us to remember that. We know in part how it ends. If you know the Word, we know in part how it ends because God's told us in Revelation chapter 22, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. So we know from other parts of the Word that these verses in Revelation really just describe the beginning of time without end in the presence of God for those of us who trust in Christ. So we know that there's a good ending overall. There is a happily ever after. Yet, more often in the challenges of this life, can we admit it's hard to hang on to? 
We know it. We know it deeply. We believe it. But it's hard to hang on to. We don't usually get to see much about what Mm -hmm. happens in the chapters in between that wonderful moment in the book of Revelation where Jesus comes and where you and I are today. So when we look at the hardship of our current situations and look back at the events of our lives, we sometimes feel paralyzed or even depressed. We often think, if only. Anybody ever struggle with the if onlys? If only I'd done this instead of that. Or if only I hadn't done that. Everything would be better now. Or if only this thing hadn't happened, life would be better today. But again, when we're in Christ, remembering that another characteristic of God is that He's all-loving. His love for us is perfect. And knowing that God knows everything, we know that there are no coincidences, there are no accidents in the trajectory of our lives. It's a cliche that I don't often use and I actually don't like to use, but there's truth in it. Everything happens for a reason. Hear people say that, right? They don't have the foundation for the understanding of that phrase and how true it is unless they know the things we're talking about here this morning. The story of our lives as individuals, as a church, and in all human history is the story that God has written in his perfect knowledge. God doesn't have regrets. And because we can trust in his omniscience, we can trust that the story of our lives that to us is still being written in the perfect knowledge of God, it's already complete. Think about that. We see this echoed in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul writes, And I am sure of this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that encouraging? When we're struggling with something, maybe we're struggling with a sin, And we say, how am I ever going to overcome this? I am sure of this, Paul said. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. How can we be sure? Because God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He is the original know-it-all. Not the kind of arrogant know-it-all when we think of that phrase. But a gracious, merciful, loving Father who knows what's best for us and is working it out in the story of our lives in Him. Now, let me throw a little caveat in there. We can't use that as an excuse for our sin, right? Don't think that if we sin, we should continue in that sin because God knows how it will turn out. That's taking His omniscience, which includes His perfect plans, out of the context of His will for our sanctification, changing us more and more each day into the image and likeness of Christ. But it does mean that the story of our lives, that again from our perspective, God is still writing that story, is based on His perfect knowledge of my heart. And that He's able to use even our sin, which we freely choose, to accomplish His purposes. This is why we can trust Him rather than think things would have been better if only. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20 says, God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. The three omni-attributes of God reveal Him to be all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present. Each of these omnis involves and connects with the other two. So they are really inseparable from each other, if you think about it. Just as God is love is inseparable from God is just. God is jealous 
and God is righteous. Each of the omnis provides a perspective on the all-embracing lordship of God. Omniscience means that he is the ultimate decider of what's true and what's false. This means God's ideas are always true. Jesus said, I am the truth. Here's more scripture to flesh out this great attribute. By the way, there's an insert uh, in your bulletins with a selection of verses related to this message. So let's just let the weight of these many um, uh, confirmations of God's omniscience uh, carry us now. Psalm 147, verse 5. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. John 21, 17. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to them, said to him, Lord, you know everything. And you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Acts 22, Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So there we see it. He, he's not excusing the sin. He said, you crucified, you killed. But he said this was happening in accordance with the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Mind-boggling. In our minds, those kinds of things don't go together. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Since it's impossible for us to divide God's omnis, his power, his knowledge, his presence, it's important for us to remember that he doesn't use his power blindly. And yet this is another reason his omniscience is so important to us. Everything God does, everything he does, has an intelligent and fully knowledgeable purpose. A definite goal and outcome in God's mind. His power is omni and universal and so is his perfect knowledge. He knows his own intentions. He knows his own motives. Now, sometimes we know, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't even know our own motivation. We don't even know our own intention, or we're not willing to admit what's clear. We sometimes know, but we don't admit it always. God knows why he's doing what he's doing and will do. He knows himself. He knows his creation. He knows the future perfectly. His omniscience is also related to his authority. He is the chief justice of the supreme court of all things. He is the ultimate standard of what is true and false. As we've noted, God doesn't just know what is true. He is the very nature of truth. So it's inconceivable that he could be wrong about anything. Now when David, the psalmist, the King David, considers God's omniscience, in the first five verses of Psalm 139, 
what does he say? He says, such knowledge, in other words, such knowledge that you know everything, is too wonderful for me. He means wonderful not just in the sense of great. He means full of wonder, right? It is high. I cannot attain it. Rather than cowering in fear before such an all-knowing God, David admits he can't truly grasp omniscience. I can't attain it, he writes. But he also calls it wonderful. He considered it a precious blessing. And if we were to take the time to dig deeper into this psalm, which we don't have time for this morning, but we'd see that God's perfect knowledge of us pursues us wherever we go, and that his knowledge of us didn't just start the uh, day we were born, but when we were still being formed in our mother's womb. Amazing! Theologian John Frame writes of Psalm 139, Wicked people should well be terrorized by this doctrine. Think about it. He knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you are awake. So you better be good for goodness sake. Wicked people who don't know Christ should be terrorized by this doctrine. But to the psalmist, God's knowledge of us is wonderful and good. And he prays that God will draw on this knowledge to lead him to repentance and forgiveness of sin. When we consider omniscience with the other omnis of God's omnipotence, omnipresence, we can recognize too that these are ways of speaking of God's lordship. He's the Lord of knowledge. He's sovereign over knowledge, which also means he's sovereign over truth. He's the Lord of truth. Lord is the word used in Scripture over 7,000 times to refer to God. Sovereignty is almost a synonym for lordship. God's omniscience is his authority, his sovereignty, his lordship over truth because he knows everything. He gets to declare what's true and what's false. He gets to declare what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. Now think about this. This is the biggest challenge for our culture, right? When it comes to the truths that the Lord is gracious to reveal to us in his word. In our culture today, people want to declare their truth. They want to live their truth. My truth is more important than anything else. What I want, what I feel. That's why we see the kinds of things that are acceptable and celebrated in our culture today, but clearly spelled out in the Word of God as sin. God's truth is based on His omniscience, and since He knows everything, He must know right from wrong. This idea is noxious and offensive to the person who wants to create and live their own truth. And sometimes you hear people say things such as, your religion is medieval, outdated, out of touch. They'll say something like, get with the 21st century. Why would you want to base your morality on a book more than 2,000 years old? Or, that's your truth. But God doesn't get new information or insights. It's not as if God ever thinks something like this. Wow, these folks have learned so much and changed their world so much, maybe I should rethink some of my standards. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? There's such a thing as recency bias. Have you ever heard that phrase, recency bias? That's we think we know more about life than people in ages past did, so our ideas must be better. Now, that may be true in some things, like central heat and air conditioning. 
I don't want to go back to the day when we didn't have air conditioning in 100-degree Tulsa summer, right? Drinkable water, medicines, automobiles, some other things that have truly improved our lives and our comfort. But we must remember that because God is omniscient, and that includes his perfect knowledge of past, present, and future, his eternal plan, which includes the perfect knowledge of what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil, cannot have been formed by advice or input from anything or anyone other than himself. He's perfect in himself. I hate to say this, he doesn't need us. He certainly doesn't need us to advise him. Now at the moment God looked into the future from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time, there was nothing else. He has always known all things that they are and ever will be. Psalm 33 verse 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. God doesn't make decisions on what to do based on what we would do if we were left to ourselves. He's not the slave of creatures. We're creatures, brothers and sisters. We're creatures who make up history or their own truth as they decide things. Even our prayers are to be prayed with the humility of creatures who are finite in knowledge, not infinite or omniscient. How did Jesus teach us to pray to God the Father? Your will be done. Your will be done. He didn't suggest we pray, God, nice plan you've got there, but please do it my way because it's probably better. If God knows all that will happen and is more powerful than everything that can affect what will happen, God must have a plan and purpose in all that happens and is totally sovereign. Of course, we are mere finite creatures and we can't know all that's eternally known in the infinite mind of God. Therefore, we must do what God tells us to do and believe what he tells us is true regardless of our full understanding of how it all fits together. We are told in Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. He knows eternity past perfectly, the present and the whole future perfectly. He knows the next five minutes. He knows the next five days, five months, five years, five decades and beyond. He knows where you're going for lunch today even if you haven't decided. It's all in the mind of God at this moment with perfect knowledge with perfect understanding. C.S. Lewis wrote, everyone who believes in God at all believes that he knows what you and I are going to do tomorrow. A.W. Tozer writes this about God's omniscience. God perfectly knows himself, and being the source and author of all things, it follows that he knows all that can be known. And this he knows instantly and with a fullness of perfection that includes every possible item of knowledge concerning everything that exists or could have existed anywhere in the universe at any time in the past or that may exist in the centuries or ages yet unborn. Because God is all-knowing, we can trust that he knows everything we're going through today and everything that we will go through tomorrow. When we meditate on this truth, especially in light of his other attributes of goodness and love, it makes it easier to trust him with all we have going on in our lives, from the very serious to the silly and mundane, like where we're going for lunch after church. Wow. 
wow, think about these things. What else can we say but wow when we begin to wrestle with, to grasp this truth about this important omni of God? And you know what? We haven't even scratched the surface. We haven't scratched the surface of God's omniscience. We haven't even considered how it impacts other key things we learn from Scripture. If we say God doesn't fully know everything, including the future that for us has yet to happen, what other doctrines about God will we have to revise or throw away in some way? If he doesn't know the future, including how we'll respond to circumstances, does that mean he can make mistakes? Are you prepared to say that God can make mistakes? If he doesn't know everything perfectly, it must mean he learns. He must, for example, learn if he's surprised by what we do. And think about biblical prophecy, the prophecies we see in Scripture. How can any of it be true if God doesn't have perfect knowledge about his free creatures and how they will respond in given circumstances? Does that mean he makes lucky guesses? He doesn't have a lifeline on how to be a millionaire, right? How could he know, for example, Mary would say yes to the birth announcement of Jesus? He said, be, be it to me as you say to the angel, right? As for me, I am going to rest in this omni that I don't fully grasp myself. I'm going to come to rest in the same place that the Apostle Paul did. In pondering these things, God's perfect knowledge, his perfect plans, it caused Paul to write this great passage in Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. We can only touch a portion of God's plans for humanity, his understanding, his infinite knowledge of his human creatures, how they work in our time, in our lives, and in our hearts. That's what Paul was referring to in this passage of Romans 11. He was considering the plan of salvation for the Jews and for the Gentiles. And he was feeling like someone who'd climbed to the top of a mountain with great effort only to see that when he got to the top of that mountain, how much more there was to see. What depth spread out below him. What height spread out around him and above him. Paul knows that God is not only unlimited, as revealed in the creation that we can see, but he's unlimited in his creation as far as what he knows. We call this part of God's nature his omniscience. Paul breaks into spontaneous praise here in this passage from Romans 11, right? About God's infinite knowledge and wisdom. He chose to praise this very specific attribute of God's nature, his omniscience, which his wisdom is part of, his ability to take our free decisions into his plan in such a way that they fulfill his will. I've wrestled with that most of my Christian life. How can it be a free choice and God still know and plan the future? I don't know. But it brings me to where Paul was. The depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
from him, to him, through him are all things, right? Only an infinitely wise intelligence could do that, reconcile those things. And I'll quote my favorite movie verse from uh, my favorite new movie quote from Rudy. Seen Rudy? Okay. The scene where the priest is with Rudy. And he says, there's two controversial things. Rudy was dismayed by what was happening and how things weren't happening the way he wanted. There's two controvertible things I've learned in my years in the ministry. He said, there is a God and I'm not him. That is very sound theology from a Hollywood movie. So let's think about this. This is the God we worship, my brothers and sisters. This is the God to whom we pray. This is the God who redeemed us and set us on a path toward eternity with him. This is the only God worthy of our glory, honor, and praise. The original and only true know-it-all. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that your word gives us such great clarity about what you know, about all the things that you know, and that your knowledge is infinite and it's perfect. Father, we pray that understanding just a glimpse of what that means in the context of our lives and of our prayers and of our suffering, Lord, just what that means would have a real impact on how we trust you, and how we give you glory and honor and praise when we reach that height that Paul reached and realize there's so much more to unpack, so much more that belongs to you. We thank you for this, Father. We pray that this would be an encouragement to us. This would encourage us to trust you as we pray. This would also encourage us to give you the glory and honor and praise that you so richly deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.